the 165-year-old title The Atlantic announces changes for their June issue, including an expanded book section. Their executive editor, Adrienne LaFrance, tells us more. Plus, how Der Spiegel covered the World Economic Forum this year. And finally, a novel idea, a magazine on the wisdom and insights from long-form podcasts. Yes, a podcast you can read. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about The Atlantic, the venerable 165-year-old American title that is known as the home of the best U.S. writers. And for their June issue, they're expanding their book reporting and criticism, becoming once again a chief literary destination. For June, their cover story is Caitlin Flanagan writing on Joe and Didion's California. I spoke with Adrienne LaFrance, executive editor for The Atlantic. We were founded 165 years ago in large part as a literary magazine, and it just feels so deeply part of our DNA to be focused on books. We, you know, our founders were the transcendentalists, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, Longfellow. And so since the, the very beginning of The Atlantic, we've had this sort of deep affinity for literature and the world of books and poetry. And we've continued to cover this realm over recent years, but in a slightly less deliberate way. I mean, we've always made space for books coverage in, in the print magazine, but we had the opportunity to hire a small dedicated team who could really focus on books day to day as well. So it, it's just really exciting in terms of sort of a return to our core mission in some ways, but it's also, I think, at a really tumultuous moment globally with the pandemic and so much, certainly in the United States, the sort of political chaos that we've endured. To give people the space for literature, I think it's just essential. It's an essential part of being human. So it just, it feels right to do it as the Atlantic and it feels necessary in this moment. And as you said as well, it's part of the magazine's DNA as well. I mean, it, it's being host of, you know, many of the US best writers. So I think it's a really kind of good move. And that starts with the cover story uh, for the new issue. Tell us a bit more. And I have to say, I have the cover here from the print edition. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful from the color palette and, and of course the topic. But you, you will tell us a bit more about that. Thank you. Yeah, it's I, I really love this cover too. It's Caitlin Flanagan, one of our staff writers, wrote about Joan Didion, who recently died and is one of obviously one of America's great writers. Well, Caitlin Flanagan is one of America's great writers, and Joan Didion was one of the great writers of the 20th century and the 21st for that matter. And so Caitlin, what she's done is she wanted to understand sort of what gave Joan Didion her writerly power. And to do that, she had this really interesting idea. She's Caitlin is from California. Didion famously is from California and wrote beautifully about California. And so Caitlin decided to go on a sort of tour <laughs> to sort of visit Joan Didion's, the houses where she either grew up in childhood or lived as an adult to try to sort of like understand firsthand what gave her her powers of observation. And, and the result is just, I mean, it's beautifully written. It's a totally original approach. And I, I really can't recommend it highly enough. It's a wonderful story. And, you know, it's very much long form. It feels like, you know, she dedicated her time to the story, you know, to visit all of those mm -hmm. houses. So I, I think that that's brilliant that publications like The Atlantic, they're still doing that because that's how a nice story is created, right? Absolutely. I mean, great writing often takes time. And, and sometimes, I mean, speed is certainly a value and we move quickly at the Atlantic. And 
some of our great writers can write very, very fast, and that's wonderful. But there are some stories that require months or even years, and we want to make plenty of time for those as well. And Adriana, I want to know more about your history at The Atlantic. Of course, you're now uh, the executive editor. But, you know, you've been there for a few years and you had other other posts. So tell us a bit more. When did you start it at The Atlantic? Sure. So I started here in 2014, so about eight years now, which is a long time. I previously was in a couple other editing roles, but also I was a staff writer for a time and then became the website editor and now executive editor. So I've, I've gotten the chance to do a number of different things here, which has been wonderful. And how is the, the difference between the digital and the print uh, kind of approach for the Atlantic? You know, I was in the U.S. recently. Sometimes I feel that it's quite different than here in Europe. For example, I know that in the U.S. you have this kind of the subscription model. It's completely different than here in Europe. I think subscriptions are more important there. But how is the Atlantic reader consuming the title these days? Yeah, I mean, we so we have like we, we have digital and print subscriptions and many of our readers choose to do both, which is wonderful. And uh, the way I'd put it is the print magazine is a specific and and very important product to us and to our readers. And even those who choose to read in print also often are reading on their smartphones, like the way that you might. I certainly am reading on my phone all the time. And so in terms of how we think about the Atlantic and our journalism, we are really not it's one team, it's one mission, but the print magazine is a specific and carefully created product. Well, I like that. And I want to highlight some of the other stories from the June issue. I think one that was quite interesting to me, even though we're not talking about, I'm from Brazil, but you know, I can, we can relate a little bit to this, the evangelical movement uh, and how mm. politics poisoned the church. What an interesting story as well. So uh, a lot of new information that I didn't know. So, you know, of course you have the expansion of the book section, but it's quite a newsy story in a way. Yeah, and that one by Tim Alberta, it's really beautifully done and deeply reported. He spent a lot of time going to different evangelical churches across the United States to understand how these spaces have become politicized. Previously, it really, you know, people would go to church and not expect to hear about politics. And now there is a population of people in the United States who are not only expect to hear about politics, but, but want to and are choosing their churches as a result. And we know that the evangelical movement is a really potent political force um, for Trumpism in particular. So it, it's a, a really important story, not just about the political future, but, uh, you know, helps the reader understand how the ground is shifting in the United States. And Adrian, what can you tell us about the uh, Atlantic editions? They will publish a series of books by Atlantic writers as well. I thought it was quite exciting. When uh, will it come out? That's great. Yeah. Um, so we've we've just announced that we are creating our own imprint uh, in partnership with Zando, which is a, a publisher. Um, and so what this means is that Atlantic writers will have will be releasing their work in book form as well. The first, uh, I believe, will be able to share pre-order links this week, even. But the first books will come out, you know, around the holiday time and early next year. Um, the ones that we've announced so far, we have um, Megan Garber, Sophie Gilbert. Lenica Cruz and Caitlin Tiffany, who writes the column uh, Famous People with another writer, Lizzie Plowjix. So they're all, I mean, just some of our really talented writers and it's going to be great fun to get to read them in book form as well. Adrian, I know you also have uh, great newsletters. You know, I'm a subscriber of some of them. 
And I was oh, wondering, yes, really good. <laughs> and I was wondering, is your reader, I mean, of course, it's your magazine and, and, and title were always based in the United States, but there's quite a lot of international following, I, I would say, right? Or, or, or correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, do you see the approach from people from other, other countries as well? Yeah, we do have, and we have some folks even who are based in, in abroad. We have some editors and, and writers in London, and we do see that we have readers outside of the United States, certainly. I mean, we describe ourselves as a magazine of the American idea, but of course, we're also quite preoccupied with America's place and standing in the world. And and we write about places that are not the United States and, and are not focused on them. So we've had readers all over the place. We're very happy for that. <laughs> yes. And, and, and subscribers to the newsletters as well. And you have the summer reading guide as well, which is quite interesting. What are you going to read this summer? I mean, if you can tell us, sorry, if that if there was a bit of a question on the spot. <laughs> No, no, not at all. I, yeah, I've, I'm quite the sort of impulse reader. I, I always have a stack of books near me, so I can even just tell you kind of what's on my list. One book that I have on my to-read list is The Free World by Louis Manon. So I'm excited about that one. Um, right now I'm reading An American Type, uh, a novel by Henry Roth. And let's see. Oh, I have, I have never read Public Opinion by Walter Lippmann. So that's on my list and next to me on my desk right now as well. Thank you very much, Adrienne, and their June issue is out now. The cover is incredibly beautiful. And this year's World Economic Forum started unofficially on Sunday. Despite the lack of foreign dignitaries, the world's media has descended into the Swiss Alps, including Monaco's thing on the ground. Our news editor, Chris Chermak, caught up with Gerald Traufetter, the editor of Der Spiegel's parliament office in Berlin. Chris started by asking Gerald what he was most looking forward to cover at WEF this year. Well, we are here with four colleagues living in a, in a, in a chalet, in a, an apartment, like, like a tourist, kind of. Huh? And, um, but of course, I mean, we have big topics that we have to uh, cover. I mean, there is food security, there is energy security, there is uh, all the question of deglobalization versus globalization. Where are we now? I mean, all these big topics that are now uh, imposed on us because of the war. And, uh, of course, the Ukrainians here, they are also very interesting because they, they are all around here. And uh, I think they are very clever to really make their point and uh, talk to all these stakeholders and convince the world that they are on the, on the good side. We're at a media reception, which I find is, is nice in itself. What do you feel the role of the media, print media especially, is here? Well, I mean, print media, I mean, we work both. Uh, I mean, I work for the printed magazine of the Spiegel, but as well uh, for the website. There is no... There is no distinction anymore. So, um, yeah, I mean, what is the role? I mean, I think we have to transport the general mood here because uh, people come together after two years of not seeing each other. And uh, I think it's important, uh, I mean, how the mood changed. And I think it changed considerably, I would say, um, because there are so many things that are are now in question. So many things that we would uh, talk about in a normal way don't exist anymore. I mean, if you think of um, 
the Russian the Russian aggression. Uh, I mean the rule of law. I mean all these all these principles are are in in a big big danger. Mm -hmm. I found it interesting on the panel we heard from earlier of Ukrainian MPs and a journalist. There was really also a call in that sense for journalists to continue covering Ukraine, to keep the focus on it, to, to speak for Ukrainians and also to use Ukrainian media in itself. Yeah, of course. But on the other hand, I, I mean, as, as, as journalists, we also always have to stay um, fair and, and objective. Huh? We are not... Uh, we are not advocates of, uh, of, of one side. So, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for, for those people. I mean, it's, it, was, uh, it was heartbreaking to hear the story of this uh, photographer that had to flee from Mariupol. And I mean, I, I covered war zones myself uh, a long time ago, and, and I, I have a little bit of an idea of how we felt. And uh, I have a, a big sympathy for, for these people. But of course, I mean, we have to... Uh, report about all sides and this is also including Russia is also uh, including um, allies of Russia I mean yeah we have to we have to put together a picture that is uh, coherent and just finally I'm just curious Germany has quite a strong representation politically not every leader is here but Robert Habeck and Olaf Scholz are here what are you expecting from them it's interesting. I mean, I expect uh, Habeck to make his point of um, uh, energy security. I mean, this is what he is now basically doing uh, 24 hours a day. I mean, he has to he has to make sure that uh, the German economy is uh, able to survive a, a gas embargo from Russia and all these things are an oil embargo. So he's pretty much obsessed with that. And also the public in Germany is very interested in how how he's doing that i mean he was he will negotiate here with uh, some other ministers from uh, saudi arabia and these kind of countries schultz yeah i don't know i mean i think he will try to explain his policy as far as ukraine is concerned about weapon exports i think uh, he has to justify a lot uh, um, because there was so many people in abroad that uh, criticized him heavily for that. And um, I think it's a good opportunity for him to explain a little bit of, uh, yeah, of his strategy. Thank you very much, Chris and Gerald. Finally on the show, a novel idea, a magazine of transcripts from the best podcasts out there. From Andrew Roberts telling us the craft of biography to Carl Newport on how we can improve our relationship with technology. The podcast reader is a quarterly title based in Australia. I spoke to their publisher, David Lodger. So, I mean, I love magazines and I love podcasts. Uh, and it just has occurred to me and, and a few of my circle of friends that there was just some extraordinary content being created by long-form podcasts, but that perhaps the content was just too good to disappear into someone's podcast feed on their phone or on their computer. Uh, and some of the content, you know, really deserved uh, a longer and more permanent life. In particular, we also think that some long-form podcasts deal with some quite important materials and quite complex uh, or complicated ideas. Uh, and that really to get the best out of those ideas, 
it's often better to read than than to listen. And the reality is a lot of us, when we're listening to podcasts, we're perhaps distracted, we're multitasking, we're doing other things at the same time. And so when this terrific material crossed my path, I just thought, you know, really this this deserves to be in print. Uh, and so a few of us down here in Australia have come together uh, and, and launched this publication. There's something, I don't know, quite, uh, you know, eternal about print as well, because as you say, you know, sometimes there's such an interesting podcast and at least, you know, now it's in print, you know, so people can collect that. People can, you know, take their time to read and, and reflect because sometimes podcasts, they are interesting, but, you know, everything's going so fast and, and you have to kind of digest uh, in a way, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly right. The reality is that podcasts are, you know, content creation machines. They are a terrific platform for dealing with important ideas. I find the long-form interview format really engaging that we, we see on podcasts at the moment. It just feels like a better device for ideas to be communicated, to be challenged, and it's a polite format as well. It's not like typical old school journalism where maybe a journalist is trying to catch out a guest and find mistakes. It's really just trying to engage with ideas and, you know, get to some different version of the truth, perhaps. How has it been the, the reception so far? I mean, you are, uh, we have five issues of the podcast reader already. I know you're about to print issue number six as well. So clearly you found a market for that as well. And is it only in Australia or how international it is, the magazine? We are a global publication. Our content is global and our readership is global. Uh, given we've started in Australia, about half of our readers now are in Australia, but we are slowly building in the UK, the US, Canada, and in Europe. You know, initially, a lot of the feedback is, you know, what a crazy idea. Why on earth would I want to read something that I could listen to? But then on second thoughts, a lot of people come back to us and say, actually, that's quite clever because... Uh, I'm not keeping up with my podcast feed, so I know that I'm missing things. I recognise that there's a lot of important ideas being dealt with in podcasts. I don't have the time to get to them all. So kind of thank you for doing a bit of screening for us. Also, we believe that people tend to read much quicker than they can listen. So just you can process more ideas. If you have limit, We all have a limited amount of time in our lives. This magazine is a way of you know, bringing you important ideas in a way that you can then process more efficiently, if you like. And so the reception has been quite good. Also, a lot of people, we have the feedback that a lot of our readers actually don't engage very much with podcasts. They recognise that something important is happening in podcast world, but uh, they just haven't got around to it. They don't know where to start. And so this is their entree into the world of podcasts. So there's really like those different types of, of users, I guess you like, those that are uh, really happy for us to do the selection work for them, to bring them great content. Those that are interested in ideas and are happy to engage in this content, you know, in, in this way to read, you know, if there's a complex idea, you can go back to it, you can underline it more easily. And the third one is just people that haven't engaged with podcasts and they appreciate that we're bringing them access to all these, you know, global, you know, I think amongst the world's best long-form podcasts. And you know what, you're so right, because people, they appreciate media in different ways. I have friends, they like to go for a run and they manage to listen to a podcast. I could never hear because the content wouldn't get inside my brain. I need to listen to just kind of very upbeat uh, music. 
But tell us, clearly you're a podcast fan. How do you do the selection for each issue? Is it kind of a conversation saying, you know what, our, our listeners might be interested in this political story from this particular podcast, or we should do something a bit lighter? Tell us about this curation process. Yeah, so we have a deep respect for The New Yorker and the way that every issue of The New Yorker is serendipitous. You don't know what you're going to find there, but you just trust that the content will be good across whatever topic that they decide to present in that issue. And we we are producing the podcast really with that same idea in mind. We want every issue to present a range of content across the arts, uh, entrepreneurship, history, public policy, science, so that the reader in every issue gets access to a lot of interesting ideas. And it's more, you know, it's, it's a generalist publication. Maybe some of our readers are entrepreneurs and they are happy to learn more about science or literature or history, or maybe, you know, it's a, it's a historian who wants to learn more about entrepreneurship. But the aim is that every issue has a cross-section of content. Uh, and so we're bringing people absolutely first-class content and we bring them exposure to ideas that maybe haven't or wouldn't have crossed their path otherwise. So that's, that's the way we, we like to put it together. The long-form podcast format is an, also an alternate book review format because a lot of our content are authors discussing their work and we think that this format is a really good introduction to, to books. So, you know, in, in five, eight, 10,000 words, we can provide a terrific summary to someone's work, which maybe is 100,000 words long. Can you give us a little preview of issue six, perhaps? Sure. I mean, we started off, you know, small in Australia. We had four podcast channels, which were happy to work with us. And we suddenly now have a lot of podcasts which are coming to us and want to work with us. So. Uh, in this issue, we have content from three podcasts for the first time, an American political uh, podcast called The Trippy Show, as well as uh, a podcast of one's own, which is hosted by Australia's former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, and an Australian public platform called ABC Conversations. Uh, and, I mean, our content, I guess, in our sixth issue spreads across three topics. Firstly, how we can improve society. So there we are discussing, you know, citizens' assemblies and their use in, in how we might be able to improve democracies. We discuss the vaccine development process uh, with COVID and then a few historical, economic, historical and uh, Winston Churchill uh, and the craft of biography. So how to improve society. Secondly, you know, how to improve yourself how uh, it's just some ideas on how we can, you know, better engage with technology and how we can better use, you know, meditation and mind management in sport and in life. Uh, and thirdly, we have content, you know, from what I would call the frontiers of knowledge. So frontiers of entrepreneurship, the frontiers of, of, of biology and biochemistry and things like that. So a very broad cross-section of topics. Uh, and I think, you know, almost everyone will find plenty here that's new to them. Uh, and also plenty that's interesting. And a very kind of random question in a way, but when the transcription is done, how do you feel about it? Do you feel, is it edited for clarity or you just literally leave what, what's on the interview? Kind no, of? That's, that's an excellent question. Mm. Look, we, we, we absolutely do light editing for readability. 
Um, we want this to be a very accessible and user-friendly product. When we speak, there are verbal ticks which enter into our language. That becomes slightly annoying if we just wanted to read that. So we are very faithful to the original content, but we, we make very slight edits for readability just so it flows very well and we don't get caught short on, on grammatical errors which may slip into the spoken word. Thank you very much, David. Issue 6 of the podcast reader is out now. Who knows, perhaps the stack can be featured in an upcoming edition. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to Not A Whole, our editor. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to email me, Fernando, at fp at monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday, live at 10 a.m. London time. And meanwhile, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com. And please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also subscribe to our magazine Monaco on our website as well. Before we go, a little song for you by The Beatles, Paperback Writer. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.